So for this special edition of Consistently Eccentric, I was lucky enough to record with Ollie Green, uh, who works from the uh, History Emporium and Pals podcast. Uh, He's recorded a ton of stuff on a ton of different subjects, and he's recently struck up a great friendship with a guy called Chris, and the stuff that they're recording now is fantastic. I suggest you go and uh, listen to it. Anyway, we decided that what we do over one evening is a bit of a cultural exchange and I'd record an episode with him about a famous person from my hometown uh, and in exchange he would tell me a story about some famous people from his hometown. If you want to hear the sister um, episode to the one that you're about to listen to, uh, it's available um, at the History Emporium and Pals podcast wherever you like to get your podcasts. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into the show. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history, focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... So my hometown of Southport is quite unusual in the UK as we know both when it was founded and who founded it. You won't find it in the Doomsday Book. You, you won't find it in anything before very, very late Georgian because it was founded by a fiddle-playing pub landlord called William Sutton in 1792 when he built a hut for people to change into their bathing suits for a dip in the sea. And when I, when I say a hut, it really was like a shanty shack originally. He saw that it was quite popular, so he sold his rather profitable business, a pub called the Black Bull in Churchtown, where he could have lived comfortably the rest of his life, and he built a hotel in the middle of nowhere on the coast. And despite everything, it was popular, and he did quite well for a few years, until better, more professional hoteliers moved in, seeing the chance of making some profit, and quickly and effectively ran him out of business. And he ended up dying in debtor's prison in Lancaster 40 years later. Much like... (laughs) Starting my life in Southport and then moved to Lancaster, although I'm hoping I I won't die in debtor's prison. And not getting (laughs) your fiddle out. You know... uh, Well, I, I, I play a ukulele aggressively at people. Oh, what? How am I only finding this it's, out now? That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the modern day equivalent of a fiddle. I love it. Well, I, I play my own theme song. <laughs> that is brilliant. I've, I've recently got an electric ukulele. What? I'm is, learning yeah. so much. I, I... <laughs> but in spite of only being around 230 years old, Southport has produced a selection of famous people. We produce quite a lot of footballers because just down the road is Liverpool, Everton, Manchester City, Manchester United. We've got a lot of teams to go for, you know, if, if you're a young, talented lad. Uh, but also TV chef Marcus Waring. And I only found this out when I was researching this episode. I did not realise when I was watching MasterChef The Professionals that he was a Southport native. Well, there you go. He's far too well-spoken <laughs> to be a Southport native. Uh, soft cell singer Mark Almond. I love soft cell. For yeah, and the thing about the Mark Almond thing is both he and four fifths of the band Gomez 
went to the same college I went to. So it's really cool to think that, you know, when we were sort of putting together garage bands in our teens, you, you knew that someone had done it from the very same place you were starting. It gave you a bit more confidence to, to think you could make it. Obviously, I didn't, but, you know, the confidence was there. Not yet. Not not yet, yes. That's that's a good point. Mm. There's a, There's a lot of scope for a 33-year-old ukulele player to really top those charts. Do you know what? I just might change the branding of my podcast completely and it could be Joe Heathcote's um, ukulele band and co podcast. Extravaganza. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, done. Sold. We, we, write, we write a different historically based song. <laughs> Can you play green sleeves on it? That's My theme tune is me playing green sleeves and talking over that. So yeah, I can play green sleeves. It's the very first thing I learned. <laughs> oh my god, I'm living the dream right now. This you is... can say what you want about Henry VIII. He could write a hook. He could write a good tune. Mm. Although that's that's yeah, that's debatable whether he wrote that or not. Yeah, but when you're when you're powerful enough, you can claim other people's work. Mm. And no one yeah. will dispute it. I was going to say, look at Shakespeare then, but I'm not going down that road. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah. Shakespeare, actually, there is a theory that he was from Southport, despite the town not existing at that time. He he was he was so far ahead of his time that he was from a place that didn't exist. Yeah. I mean, I know it's the first segue of many, probably, but my thoughts on Shakespeare are, he was exactly who everyone, you know, the obvious answer as to who he was. You know, a bloke from the black country who wrote po- uh, poems and plays. Mm. It's just the fact that people couldn't accept that a relative commoner could do that. So they came up with these conspiracy theories based around basically, he's he's not posh enough. He's from north of Watford Gap. He can't possibly do anything. How does he know <laughs> what Italy is? Yeah, exactly. I am am not a huge Shakespeare fan. I know that might come as a shock to some other sort of literature, some other um, historians, etc. But yeah, I'm not, mm, I don't know. I just, I think because it was rammed down our throats so much at school, I've just got no time for it really. Which which were you forced to do at A level? That's the that's the question. Everyone was forced to do one. Uh, we did. Um, oh, what's the one with Shylock in it? Merchant of Venice. Oh, Merchant of Venice. Yeah. Mm. Which is about like a really racist thing about like hating a Jew, basically. Mm. Well, it puts the bums on seats. I I did uh, Macbeth. Mm. The Scottish which... play. Yeah, and I love the fact that you know it's it's based on kind of on a true story. Yeah, no, I've heard that. The thing is, because I kind of avoid Shakespeare at all costs, because I just, I just remember school, but it being just so horrendous. Um, but I did actually see a documentary where they, they, they sort of went back and they did the the real Macbeth, and it was, yeah, it was quite interesting. I've totally forgotten where I am, but I think I was listing famous people from Southport. So, from Macbeth to Olympic swimmer Fran Halsall, historian AJP Taylor. Comedian Lee Mack, who used to work at a place called Bates Dairy, I found out because he was doing his Who Do You Think You Are, which is where I learnt to swim. 
because a lot of people in Southport learnt to swim at a dairy. I was just about to say, like in cream or milk? No, the family had their own private pool at the bottom of the um at the bottom of their garden. Of course. And they used they used to rent it out. But to get to it you had to literally drive through the dairy. So for me, swimming is always sort of inexorably linked with the smell of slightly off milk. <laughs> The two things will always be linked in my mind. And there's probably a f- quite a few people in Southport who have that same weird sort of synesthesia link. If anyone from Southport is listening and this is true, please message me. I want to know. Yeah. And of course, the most famous, the Mac Daddy of all Southport residents. Red Rum. Three-time Grand National winner and horse. <laughs> <laughs> was, was one of ours. A the Southport ma- native. Love it. Mm. Actually, thinking about it, that's the end of my list. But also, the woman who played Queen Elizabeth in Blackadder, she's a Southport lass. Ah, oh, what is her name? She's really good. She's been in loads of films, hasn't she? Couldn't tell you, but I've just it just came to me then that she's from Southport. And it's also where Hilda Ogden came to die. There you go. So the actress who played Hilda Ogden, she retired to Southport to die. Uh, and as if that wasn't enough, the main street in Southport, Lord Street was the inspiration for the Champs-Élysées in Paris. What? And my little brother told me that fact. I called bullshit, looked it up, perfectly true. Napoleon III, he came across, he saw it, he liked it, he put it on. So every time you watch the last stage of the Tour de France, they may as well be in Southport. He liked it and he put a ring on it. I love it. Oh, he put a ring on it. You know, it's so close because we have... um, uh, the cenotaph. We have a war monument that's like a big. It's almost like the um, the Cleopatra's needle mm. at the start of the Champs Elysees. So it, it's almost perfect. And our war memorial looks, if you squint, almost like the Arc de Triomphe. So Much you're basic, smaller. You're basically <laughs> living in Paris. I was in my childhood years. Yeah, mm. pretty much living in the Paris of the northwest coast of England. But today I don't want to talk about any of those people. I want to talk about a lesser-known Southport native whose story so inspirational, especially at the time of year when people are starting to struggle with keeping hold of those New Year's resolutions. They've failed and they're facing the existential dread of those darkest winter months. I want to give those people hope that their lives, they can still make something of their lives, no matter what age they are. So... This story begins in the Victorian era and your three words to help you set the scene. Religious, artistic, manner. Religious, art, manner. Religious someone, obviously, so who uh, follows religion. <laughs> uh, are we talking a nun, possibly? Um, a manner... Manor. An artistic nun. It's basically this is the story of um, the von Trapp family. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't know. Go on. That's okay. So, our heroine, Lucy Maria Wood, was born in Southport in 1892. She was the fifth of six children to Wesleyan parents. What is Wesleyan? Those were that was my exact question when I read it. So, I know nothing about Christian sects at all. 
I thought there was Catholicism, Church of England. Apparently there's more. Um, and Wesleyan, it's uh, very um, pared back. They abstain from a lot of things. They believe the literal word of the Bible and they're almost but not quite Calvinists who are almost but not quite Baptists who are all apparently Methodists. I am not an expert in this. The important things to remember are they like to abstain from things and they believe the literal word of the Bible. I did get excited briefly when I saw that they would occasionally engage in an event called a love feast. But unfortunately, that's just the word for a communal meal oh, and not what? an orgy. I know. I thought it was going to be like witches dancing around a fire there. I, I love the idea of just repressing all of your sort of base instincts and then agreeing as a community that once a year at the love feast, all bets are off. Almost like a purge, you know, just you can do whatever you want at the love feast. Yeah, but for sexy time. Yeah, and we're not going to talk about it for the rest of the year. What happens at love feast? <laughs> stays at love feast. Stays at love feast. And oh. don't even don't even give people side eye. They don't need that. <laughs> They've been good all year. They deserve this day off. <laughs> oh. So there was a 20 year age gap between Lucy's parents. <clears throat> and it seemed that her father, James was pressured into the marriage as his wife was one of the seven daughters of the local Wesleyan minister. And as you can imagine, having seven daughters, he was keen to offload them wherever he could and he wasn't above using his holy influence to do so. It's it's a good word in God's ear if you marry his daughter. So you've got to do that. Hmm. And James himself, he was considered a catch because his father, Lucy's grandfather, Peter Wood, He'd been a successful doctor and he'd managed to jump on the Victorian fad for um, clean, fresh sea air as a means of curing all manner of ills. He bought some really cheap land in Southport on the sand dunes and he built a row of houses. And then he'd used his position as a doctor in Stockport, not Southport. Gets confusing. Did I call it Southport earlier? It is Southport, but... Southport, Stockport. Now I'm very confused. Okay. Yeah. Right. He worked in Stockport. He bought houses in Southport. Well, he bought land in Southport and built houses. He then took his Stockport patients and said, what you need is a holiday. And luckily, I have just the holiday lets for you. And I can give you a very reasonable price. So he started basically telling his patients that they had to spend time in his holiday lets in order to get better. You could say it was corruption, but... I like to think of it more as enterprising sort of free business. The guy was, you know, he was getting involved in capitalism like all good Wesleyans should. Every time you keep saying Wesleyan, I keep thinking of the Weasleys from (laughs) Harry Potter. I've got this image of all these ginger people. If it helps for you to imagine them all being ginger, that's absolutely fine. It does. It absolutely Mm. does. Okay, well, he, he made his money. They were much more popular than the original hotel that had been set up by W.D. Sutton, probably because there wasn't someone aggressively playing a fiddle at them. <laughs> Get your fiddle out for the lads. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you don't want a showman when you're off on holiday no. with a medical complaint. You want peace and quiet. Uh, and he celebrated his excessive wealth by building a massive mansion at the end of his row of houses. To show people that he was, he was the man. Mm. 
and because he had the biggest house, he was made mayor of Southport, which is nice. I mean, how else are you going to choose your mayor? Who's got the most money and the biggest house, of course. That's the person you want looking after the common folk, because he's obviously done such a good job of it. Yeah, it wasn't really in keeping with the Wesleyan aesthetic of live simply, you know, personal relationship with God. And at some point, Peter Ward, he did have a crisis of conscience regarding his obscene wealth and decided the only thing he could do to make amends was to give it all to charity. Ah, that's kind. It it would have been if that's what he did. But his version version of giving it to charity was cordoning off half of his garden and building a new Wesleyan chapel there, (laughs) which essentially forced all the Wesleyans to come to his house every Sunday and made him the uh, ipso facto literal centre of the Wesleyan community in Southport. So rather than being a charitable act, it kind of consolidated his power. Yeah. So nice. He's like the head of the church now. <laughs> or head of his he's, church. He He's the head of the town, and he's just married his son to the daughter of the head of the church. So they're forming a power couple here. Is what they're going for. Mm, an alliance. And, yeah. And his son tried tried a little bit harder to, to, to really grasp the Wesleyan ideals of simple living. And he just bought one of the houses on his dad's street. So just normal house, same as all the others. But he was a wood. And he couldn't help himself. And the first thing he did was have the roof taken off, the back wall taken off, so he could make his house bigger and longer than all the rest of the houses on the street to demonstrate that although he was equal with the other Wesleyans in the community, he was slightly more equal. And better. (laughs) And better. And because, again, he had the second biggest house and his dad had already had a go at being mayor, James was made mayor of Southport. Because It goes goes via architecture in Southport. Of course. I think that's the best way to do things. Yeah. If you you have the, the most windows... We don't tax you in Southport. We we give you government office. <laughs> it's a much better thing. It's it's aspirational. Uh, so he, he was made mayor of Southport, and <clears throat> one of the first things he did was he he commissioned a picture of himself as mayor of Southport. And according to Lucy, this picture of her father bore no resemblance at all to her dad. That being said, it was amazing in that the artist who painted it had only used his feet to complete the work. So, okay. I have a question there. Yeah. Why, why did he use his feet? Well, Lucy was very coy about this. She just mentioned that he painted it with his feet. The natural thing you go to is he didn't have hands. Mm. Yeah, but, oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> there's, there's a... You know, we're talking about a time when you had to make your own entertainment and it it feels like this guy may have tried to paint something as a bet one time with his feet, realised he was quite good at it and made it into kind of like his thing. This is also the time of opium as well, so maybe he was just high. (laughs) Yeah, maybe it wasn't just a case of psychedelics. He'd lost the use of his hands, but suddenly he he believed he had monkey toes and opposable toes that he could do it. (laughs) There are people who can do calligraphy in India. I saw a guy writing with far superior handwriting to myself and he was using his feet. Just puts us to shame, really, doesn't it? Getting back to the story, though. After getting married, 
James decided he needed to make his new wife feel welcome in his home, his new bigger home. So he redecorated his house as religiously as he could possibly imagine. He made sure that there were friezes around every wall that show biblical scenes. He put quotes from the Bible everywhere on the walls. And he got all of the trinkets and bits and bobs that he'd collected over the years from trips to the Holy Land, and he displayed them all over his home. I and mean, then he... Hmm? It's... Sounds quite tacky. It's like he didn't really understand what what the Wesleyan thought process was, and he just heard the word religious and went, "I am going to give you the most religious house." Here's all the crosses. Yeah, it's it's the kind of house where you'd walk in, and directly across from you in the hallway would be a full sort of Catholic style cross with Jesus with the wound in his side, glaring at you. That kind of feel. It, it reminds me of the television show um, Only Fools and Horses when like Del Boy and the, the Peck and Rise buildings of, of all the tat yeah. everywhere. Instead of the trappings of capitalism, it is just all the religious things you could imagine. Just the Del Boy as a priest. Like your, your keychains and your, your, um, your magnets. <laughs> I love that it exists and people buy it. Mm. Anyway, his new wife, Mary, she was very much Puritan in her outlook. She believed in the the um, creed of outward holiness. So your house, your dress, everything should reflect the fact that you are living a simple, humble life in servant servitude to God. She hated the interior decoration. Mm. She hated the fact that her husband was the mayor and she had to host parties and she had to indulge other people's excesses. But unfortunately, the second creed that she followed was paternal authority. So she had to do what her husband said. And that not only involved living in the tattiest, religious, chintziest house Southport had to offer, but also meant that she had to um, accept her role as a wife and mother and started popping out children religiously once a year for six years. So they were married, and in the first six years, they had six children. <laughs> because... Is it like once once ago on your birthday? That's it. Same time. I, I'd like to think that they had the same birthday. But oh, it was almost. Yes. Sort of, it was it was done to um, boom, 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 just military precision. But the woods, they stopped at for you know they stopped at six kids. That's enough. That's you're definitely going to make sure that you know. The family line's going to continue. There were four boys. You sorted, regardless. Done. Yeah, we'll stop there. So there was a bit of a disconnect between the males and the females, and it wasn't just um, in terms of her father and mother, Lucy's father and mother. The eccentricities of Lucy's uh, paternal line, the, the blokes, best summed up by her uncle. He was starting to go deaf. He was a bit older happens to us all start to lose some of our senses fine uh and he decided that he needed to do something about that so we're in victorian times what what would you expect him to maybe invest in uh i'm guessing uh possibly is maybe the start of of hearing aids like an early hearing aid coming out um 
Yeah, that's yeah. Early hearing aid. Early hearing early hearing aid would be a good call, but nah, not not for a member of the Wood family because they like to do things themselves and they like to do things their own way. And he commissioned a special set of extra ears that were about the size of an African <laughs> elephant's ears. They were made out of tortoise shell, and he he would wear them at all times. What like Dumbo? He yeah, a tortoise shell Dumbo. <laughs> He'd wear them to church. He'd wear them to formal dinners. My favourite story about church, because he was still deaf as a post, is there was also a woman who sat in front of him who was blind but wouldn't accept that she was blind. So between the two of them, they could be heard sort of whispering and signing to each other, trying to figure out which hymns they were supposed to be singing. <laughs> they, they created this symbiotic relationship where neither of them would accept the fact that they were disabled. It's a bit like the film uh, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, you know, with, um, oh, God, Gene Wilder and Richard yeah, Pryor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Essentially that. Only imagine Gene Wilder's character wearing massive <laughs> elephant ears. Please tell me there's a photo of this somewhere. Unfortunately not. Oh, I, no. I, there is a photo of the uncle, but they obviously convinced him to take the ears off for the family photo. Oh, that would <laughs> have looks been like, amazing. He looks angry about it, though. And if the males were all eccentrics, the females, they were prototypical Victorian spinster women. She had two aunts, both unmarried, both only in their late 40s, but essentially housebound. They'd occasionally be wheeled out into the garden in wicker bath chairs, fully head to toe, black lace. They'd be wearing bonnets. They were almost... A kind of Mrs. Havisham-esque kind of relic of a bygone age. To be fair, that's the look that I'm going for. That the full thing, bonnet and moustache. Uh, yeah, and I want, a wi- <laughs> I want a wicker basket as well. Yeah. Oh, those bath chairs, they're amazing pieces of equipment. Mm. I think that's one thing in, in sort of like modern healthcare that we've lost. The sense of um, sort of theatre that comes with invalidity in Victorian Britain. You, it, was a, it was a full affectation. You owned it, didn't you? Yeah. Look at me. Like, look what I've got. <laughs> yeah, I mean, gouty gentlemen in Victorian Britain, they looked even more grand oh, yeah. than they had without the gout. Yeah. It was, it was a full thing. <laughs> look at my body rotting itself. <laughs> <laughs> because Ta-da. I am so rich and powerful. Yeah. <laughs> the king's disease. Ta-da. It really hurts. now it was probably likely that although she had these two extremes influencing her lucy you know the two things would have balanced out but lucy's father died when she was only six from pneumonia which was a bit of a bummer Uh, now you'd think he was an incredibly wealthy guy things would be all right for the family but it was apparently and you're the Victorian expert here, so I, I defer to you if this is wrong, but it was apparently a common Victorian arrangement for the children of a well-off deceased man to be left loads of money for a comprehensive education and to get a start in life, but the widow would be left with barely enough money to keep the house together. Yeah, pretty much. She was the property of her husband, so why did she need money? <laughs> um, that's not my opinion. That's <laughs> the Victorian yeah. opinion. Well, it was the arrangement that James Wood had set up. And because Lucy's mother had never been into the trapping of wealth, she'd always been quite Spartan in her outlook. And she, 
you know, Lucy herself said her mum probably would have made a better nun than she did a mother. Mm. She loved it. Now she had an excuse to not host anyone. She had an excuse to not have to buy new clothes. She had an excuse not to get involved in all the modern frippery that she'd <laughs> been forced to, to indulge in during you know her husband's Merrill sort of um, activities. Unfortunately, she also didn't seem to understand that the kids needed things like food and new clothes when they were growing. And when the kids started to complain quite a lot that, you know, they were malnourished and that their trousers were now shorts and that they really couldn't button up their shirts anymore, um, she decided the best for, for both sides of the argument was to send the kids to school. I think that's send them fair. away. She can live the frugal life. They can be fed. Everyone's winning. They can start to spend their father's money. This was the first time that Lucy had been away from the Wesleyan community. Uh, and she was very shocked to find that the beliefs that she'd been brought up with as a Wesleyan made her a bit of an oddball mm. in a school setting. She didn't make a single friend in the first three years of school, aside from the other Wesleyans who were chucked into this world alongside her. Uh, and she was bored, senseless lessons. Didn't interest her in the slightest. And this experience, this early experience, was probably the start of her wanting to rebel against the plans that her mother had for her, which was essentially get to a marrying age, marry a good Wesleyan man, housewife. That was that was the ambition that her mother had, had for her. Mm, great. That she would make <laughs> a good match. And then, luckily for Lucy, a miracle occurred. When she was 10, her mother's health deteriorated rapidly. And the entire family were forced to relocate to Westmoreland next to the River Kent, which is a more rural area. <clears throat> Lucy, she was moved to a school in the, where she was able to just just be herself. She was the only Wesleyan, so she wasn't expected to only deal with other Wesleyans. She had to engage with the other kids. She started to make friends. She loved the fact that, unlike in Southport, which is basically a sandy desert... Flowers were growing. It was nature around her that she could interact with. She loved going down by the river. She thrived in this rural setting, and it was it was going to be the making of her. I mean, the the biggest joke about Southport is the fact that we actually hold a flower show every year, and we've won Britain in Bloom. The soil is terrible. Nothing will grow there at all. Yeah, I guess it wouldn't if it's sand. I mean the only thing we can grow is pampas grass and as we all know if you grow in pampas grass in your in your front garden it denotes that you're a swinger so <laughs> <laughs> you've really got to be careful about about that you've got to make sure you chop it down at the root very quickly otherwise people are going to get ideas and turn up at your house jingling the keys and you're just going to be confused and scared is that like the love feast it's a bit like the love feast yeah it's, it's, the Wesleyans all had pampas grass in the front gardens <laughs> to let you know that you could come round for a love feast. Love it. Whenever you so choose. So, Lucy, she's she's in the perfect place for her. She's, she actually said in her um, autobiography, this was the time she finally felt like she'd started living at the age of 10. Then her mum got better, which was a bummer because as soon as she got better, she decided she'd move the family back to Southport. Ah. Uh, uh, and after a year of freedom, 
Lucy found herself so devastated she was crying herself to sleep every night which is the reaction that many people to this day have when they're told they need to spend time in Southport <laughs> so some things just don't change oh I've never been to Southport I should come it's it's being sold these days as the classier um, version of Blackpool the problem with that is all the things that made Southport classy the Art Deco cinema the uh, outdoor sort of salt air bathing, all the things that people remember and all the things that were on the posters, the Art Deco posters that used to entice people in, they don't exist anymore. Even our fun fair that used to be pretty good, Southport Pleasureland, it's been scrapped. One of our best roller coasters, the Traumatizer, they took down, they took it to Blackpool Pleasure Beach, they painted it blue and they put it back up and thought we wouldn't notice that it was the same D roller coaster and they'd stolen it from us. So what's the like miles wise between Southport and mm. Blackpool? Um as the crow flies just a couple of miles you can see from Southport Beach you see Blackpool Tower. You've just got the Ribble Estuary between the two of you. You can't walk it and it actually takes over an hour to get to Blackpool but you can see it from Southport. You can see the one as well, you know the big roller coaster. Yeah. On a clear day, you can see that from Southport. Mm, so they're basically just stealing all your stuff and claiming it as, as their own. That's pretty much how we see the people of Blackpool, yes. Boo the, to Blackpool. Ah, <laughs> no, they have a tough time, the people of Blackpool. I, I never boo them. <laughs> I mean, my, my wife used to have to go to Blackpool, Victoria, because um, that's where her specialist was. But I remember we once went on a Friday afternoon at four o'clock um, to, to just get something checked out in A&E. There was a stag do. The groom had been arrested and was handcuffed to a wheelchair with a police escort and a broken leg. And the best man was arguing with the police while absolutely blind drunk, saying that the groom had to be released before the next morning or he would miss the wedding. And that was four o'clock on a Friday. Standard. Standard stag do in Blackpool. The only time I've been to Blackpool, I almost got stuck on the beach. All the... um, The beach is quite far down, isn't it? Um, Oh, yeah. And uh, so you go down all these stairs and you're walking along the beach and the tide comes in really quickly. So we're trying to look for stairs, but they're doing sort of renovation on the stairs. So we get to one set and we're like, no, that's not that's not open. We can't get out there. We get to another set, that's not open. And all the time, the tide is coming further and further in. Um, yeah, it was scary, man. <laughs> we're going to drown and it's all because of these damn workmen and their weird hours. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And it, like, it, the thing about Southport, Blackpool... When the water comes in, because we've got sandbanks, it will it will sneak behind you as the tide comes in. So it's lucky that you were staying near the seawall because the amount of times the lifeboats get called out because someone has walked out and they're stood on dry land and they can see the tide coming in and what they haven't noticed is it's gone around the sandbar they're on and they're just stranded. It's it's ridiculous. Didn't um, loads of the loads of these people die? Didn't they? they when they cockle cockle. Um, that was in Morecambe, in Morecambe Bay. It? Same, yeah. Same sort of idea that if you don't realise that it's sneak around the back of you, it comes as a complete shock. Mm. And then, you know, even my little brother and me, at times you'll get caught out and you'll end up, you've you've 
left it 10 minutes too long and you're wading sort of waist deep through water and all the water that's flowing through those channels is pretty strong as well so it's it's easy to get swept away if you're not sure what's going on yeah scary oh yeah but when the tide's out it looks like it's pancake flat sand for miles and miles and miles so it's really deceptive yes so but as lucy got older in southport she's grown up in southport she's right there on the cusp of the modern age where you know the victorian age is over we're into the edwardian age and the innovations are coming thick and fast so she was able to experience the first first time a car was in Southport. The very first car that ever made its way to Southport, she was offered a ride in. Ah, oh, amazing. Yeah. And she said she didn't like it. She preferred the horse and car. Had more character. But she still got to ride in it. Fair. Yeah. She saw the very first movie that was shown in Southport, which do, was shown at the town hall. Do you know what movie it was? I have no idea, but I do know that people are expected to dress formally. So you would have to go in black tie to sit down and observe this at the town hall. Was it about it was... the love feast? <laughs> yes, it was a black and white... Um, it was black and white and blue, this movie. <laughs> Instead of the piano player that you normally have over it, they had someone playing slap bass <laughs> to really get you in the mood. Oh, brilliant. And she got, to, she got to go to the very first um, swimming pool that was installed in Southport, brand new. I, I couldn't tell if you uh, at the point where it was still a full-length bathing suit, but I assume it was ankle-to-neck bathing suits at that time. But she was... So she was living a teenage life. She was, you know, she was driving around in cars. She was going to cinemas. She was going to the swimming pool. And her mum was terrified that these extravagances, these, you know distractions would take her away from the wesleyan faith despite the fact that her mom had tried to try to hold on to her by forcing lucy to sleep in her bed every night to stave away temptation but apparently that wasn't enough to convince lucy that wesleyanism was the way to go so her mom very concerned decides she has to do something drastic she has to go for the kill or cure and she decides the only thing to do is to send her daughter to an exclusive finishing school And the best one she can find just so happens to be in Paris. Hmm. So she sends her young, impressionable daughter to Paris in the hopes that that is the thing that's going to draw her back to a Wesleyan faith. So Paris of the Moulin Rouge and um, lots of dancing ladies, etc. This is this is Paris. This is the, the temptation, the sin. The you know the struggling artist the Bohemia, this is the Paris of um, George Orwell down and out in Paris. That that oh, kind of place. Such a good book. Oh, such a good book. I actually worked as a plongeur once, although it was in a hotel in Southport, and they called me a, a pot washer. Slightly <laughs> less romantic. <laughs> but amazingly, Lucy hated Paris. She didn't even stay for the entire year. She couldn't stand the people that she was there with. She considered the other girls at the finishing school to be vapid airheads that she couldn't get along with. She was annoyed that the woman who was looking after them couldn't even teach her good French. And she decided to come home. So you can imagine when Mary got this letter that her daughter was coming home, she was like, it worked. I've done it. Everyone scoffed when I sent her off to, you know, Paris. 
But look, look at what's happened. So she was feeling all smug now. She was feeling smug right up until the point where Lucy got home. Oh. Because she said, <laughs> only wanted to come home so I could formally refuse to join the Wesleyan congregation. Uh. Uh, and she announced that she was going to study in Oxford. No Specifically, way. she selected the non-religious Somerville College to study English literature. So going to Oxford and managing to pick a college that wasn't affiliated to a religious order. It's quite a difficult thing to do, but she managed it. That's such a passive-aggressive thing to do. What I love is her mum was scared that she was going to go full-on drop-out bohemian artisan, you know, joining in with all the excesses of Paris, but her form of rebellion was just so much so much more subtle. It was, I, I'm just going to go to a liberal arts college and, and learn things. That's what I want to do. That's all. Nothing major. And that was enough. Oh, that's like a kick in the teeth without actually kicking her in the teeth. It's uh... Well, it makes it very hard for a mum to... You know, if, if she dropped out completely, her mum would be per- perfectly justified in really laying into her with both barrels. You know, you're wasting your life. You're... It's very hard to tell a girl who's managed to get a place at Oxford University that she's wasting her life or that she's making bad decisions. She's like, I've, I've been accepted to study in one of the most prestigious universities in the world, mother. And especially at this year, like this time period that we're talking about, a mm. lot of women wouldn't have been sort of accepted oh, the, yeah. in these places. This was before a lot of the colleges would even accept women. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the pool that she had to go at was so much smaller as well, and she still managed to make it there. Oh, yes, Lucy. Yeah, well, she, she stayed for about a year, Oh. And then she got bored. Specifically because it was 1915 and she was caught up in the war propaganda. Mm. Lucy decided she wanted to do her bit and she enlisted as a nurse for the war effort. She insisted, Lucy, on being posted to France. She wasn't going to do no nursing of invalids who were shipped back because, ironically, one of the hospitals that um, servicemen from the front line were shipped to was Birkdale, which is part of Southport. Um, Siegfried Sassoon himself, the war poet, he um, did some convalescing in Birkdale. And the medals that he won on the front lines, uh, he actually threw into the sea off Southport. Why? <laughs> uh, because he was so dis- he was so disenchanted and uh, with the entire sort of lies that he'd been sold about the war that in protest he threw his medals into the sea and he I did like so him. off Southport. Good on him. As far as I'm aware, they've never been found. So if you are ever in Southport, you could go out with a metal detector. If you found those, if you found Siegfried Sassoon's war medals, whew, I'll tell you what, you'd, you'd be the last one on Antiques Roadshow. Well. For sure. As soon as this lockdown ends, I'm getting in yeah, my car. you'd be the tease. Yeah. Yeah, but wouldn't it be ironic, this southerner coming up, taking our medals taking our medal well i can't remember i don't think i think Siegfried Sassoon was from the northeast anyway so you know i don't think it'd be fair for a northwest person to find him i think what we need to do is invite geordies over to go and go and spelunk and uh, have a look on the beach and see if they can't find it so this is a invite to everyone who listens in newcastle please go over <laughs> <laughs> and find if these that's medals. where he's from i'm i'm totally i i'm maybe misremembering that but whoever is in the was born in the same town as siegfried to soon come and try and find his medals you are if welcome you do, yeah yeah you're welcome to go for a look uh so she she didn't want to be 
you know, just dealing with people who were sent back over to England. She wanted to be front and centre, and she insisted she was sent to France. And in 1916, after doing a training, she was able to get work at the casualty clearing station behind the lines at Hullgate in Normandy. So she got into France. She was possibly not the best nurse in terms of technical skill, although apparently she was great at wrapping a bandage. <laughs> that was the thing that she was she was just tip top at bandaging people. Yeah. yeah, natural affinity for bandaging, and she was actually also very good at stitching. And she later went on to be quite an accomplished quilt maker. That doesn't come up again, but it's it's quite interesting. Um, she treated the soldiers like people, and so naturally she was almost immediately sent home for the offence of sitting on a bed to play drafts with an injured soldier. How so dare she sat she? on his bed, and the matron who was an American, weirdly, tried to have her disciplined and sent home because she thought, well, if you sat on his bed, that's practically intercourse. So I'm not having my ward used as a knocking shot. But luckily, the the doctors in charge were pretty sure that that was bullshit. Mm. And they allowed her to stay. Good. Nice. So there was no love feasts going on there either. There were no love feasts in the... She she was a diligent nurse. She was an attic nurse. And weirdly, I didn't know this until I read this story, but as she was a member of the voluntary aid detachment, there was no obligation for her to stay. It, she was literally a volunteer nurse, and she could take time off as and when she wanted, oh, which guess. she did. She would uh, go home when she wanted, so she'd get a ferry back to England, spend a few weeks with her mum, if she wanted to, then she'd get a ferry back and just pick up. She'd travel around the unoccupied bits of France, you know, the bits that weren't a, a quagmire hellscape. In fact, it's fair to say that she enjoyed her time in France during World War One much more than she had her time in Paris in the pre-war years. War is very bizarre, and the, the laws and the rules and stuff that go around it. So, um, yeah... I, I, yeah, I find it very bizarre that there's laws when it comes to war. So some wars can be legal and others can be illegal. It's weird. I, I love the fact that, um, I think it was during World War One the Germans who'd been using mustard gas, they'd been bombing civilian populations with zeppelins, they lodged an official complaint about the fact that um, the American soldiers were using shotguns and they wanted shotguns banned from war because they felt it was unfair. <laughs> and it's the the cognitive dissonance of we're going to send over literal chemical weapons and just gas people and that's okay but the use of you know a gun that fires shots rather than a single bullet no 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 come on now play the game guys yeah there there is just no rhyme nor rhythm to it is there yeah but do you know what war was all also a good place for good place for a whirlwind romance because Lucy fell in love and try as she might to cast off her Wesleyan roots it was with a distant relative a fellow Wesleyan called Harold Boston he was an officer though and he looked good he looked good in his uniform (laughs) they married in September 1917 during Harold's leave back to England Um, they actually got married in Somerset weirdly uh, I don't know how they ended up there. Neither of them were from Somerset. I mean, maybe it was on the way married. back from France, maybe. <laughs> going up. It's in the West Country, yeah. yeah I don't, I don't know how they, they went, got there. They went up like a different way. 
my only thought was that they wanted to honeymoon in Cheddar Gorge and it's the quickest sort of way to do it. Mm. But almost exactly a year after they got married, Lucy gave birth to a son. So it seemed that in spite of her desire to break away from the life that her mother had envisioned for her, Lucy would have to settle down into the life of a housewife once the war was over and she wouldn't make a mark on history. She'd tried to be rebellious, but she'd ended up marrying a Wesleyan. She'd had a kid. And as soon as the war was over, she was going to be discharged from the VAD. She'd be making house. And she did. Right up until the point that her husband abruptly left her in 1935. Again, not sure. And not surprisingly, she didn't put in her memoirs why he left. Um, I'm going to guess infidelity. Mm-hmm. on his part I was going to say did he find another Weasley he, yeah <laughs> you know it was another Wesleyan um, but he he just left her I mean part of me thinks well at this point the kid was about 17 so maybe he'd stayed you know to make sure his kid was yeah. to the age where he was he was getting ready to go off to college and university and was like right well I've done my job there's no love here anymore mm. So either way, uh, she was now a 42-year-old divorcee. And Lucy decided, sod it, I've got means. I've still got the inheritance from my father. I'm going to go to Europe and I'm going to try and get over the shock of you leaving me by becoming an artist. And she went and she studied art in Vienna, where she was described as being naturally gifted. And she might have stayed in Europe for many years if the increasing influence of a less successful art student who tried to study in Vienna, hadn't disrupted her plans. Go on, who was that? <laughs> Adolf Hitler. What? <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Sorry. <laughs> he'd been, he'd been uh, rejected by the Vienna School of Art, hadn't he? And yeah. Whereas, whereas she'd been ex- he'd been rejected. And unfortunately, Europe was getting a bit hot around the late uh, 1930s. Yes, there were some so, issues there. <laughs> yeah, so she decided that she'd return to England... And she moved to Cambridge because that was where her now 19-year-old son was studying at Cambridge University. Mm-hmm. So she'd, she tried to do the housewife thing. She'd been stymied by her husband running away. Then she tried to become a, a bohemian artist in Europe and she'd been stymied by the Fuhrer. Uh, so she's at a loose end. She's looking around Cambridge in 1939, which was, you know, a completely uneventful year in Europe bored um, wondering what to do with the rest of her life and then she heard that a house was for sale in a nearby village called Hemingford Grey now Lucy had been to Hemingford Grey before and she assumed that the house that was for sale was a near derelict building she had once seen while boating down the river over 20 years before and because before she was a Boston she was a wood the wood jeans kicked in and she decided she needed an architectural project. <laughs> That's what she needed to do. She needed to do something in terms of building a house. So she decided on the spot she was going to buy the house. She was going to rebuild it and she was going to design a whacking great big garden for herself where she could grow all the plants and flowers that just wouldn't grow in Southport soil. Nice. Rather than contacting the estate agent, she decided, I know where it is. I'll drive there. And she drove immediately to the house, rang the doorbell and announced to the owners that she wanted to buy it and that she was going to pay cash. It turns out that the house that she went to was not the house that was advertised for sale. 
<laughs> but the owners had been thinking about selling up and they took a woman knocking at their door unannounced <laughs> and demanding to buy their house for cash as a sign from God and agreed to the sale there and then. She's got the touch. You've been living in a house and you weren't sure about it. And you're like, mm, maybe we should sell. You know, I, I just think we should downsize. I mean, this is a manor and there's two of us. And then some woman knocks at the door and goes, how much? And just starts throwing cash at you, making it rain. <laughs> yeah, you, you're probably going to go along with it, aren't you? Yeah. It turned out that the house was actually known as the manor. And it had been built in 1130. Nice. making it one of the oldest continuously inhabited houses in England. In the Georgian period, it had been owned by two sisters who were known as the most beautiful women in Europe. Unfortunately, they had the un... Well, yeah, they had the unfortunate name of the Gunnings, which, to me, conjures up images of wild western outlaws rather than Georgian beauties. <laughs> <laughs> if I told you the Gunning sisters were coming... Yeah. You'd, you'd be worried that you're about to be held up at yeah. gunpoint, wouldn't you? They're going to shoot Rather than me. romanced. Yeah. <laughs> Swept off your feet by their beauty and wit. Um, Lucy didn't like the name The Manor, uh, and she renamed it Green No, and set about renovating it. Though with slightly less religious scripture on the walls than her father probably would have approved of. In fact, she she didn't put any religious scripture on the walls, and there were no religious friezes around the edge and there were absolutely no um islamic style um onion arches in the entire house <laughs> so it was plain very disappointing very plain yeah now and i know i've gone a long way through this story and you're thinking why are we talking about lucy yeah no, what, what impact has she left on history I like she's lucy. an interesting person but she was 48 when she bought the house but despite that, it was where she would spend the majority of her life. Okay. Lucy lived at Greenow for 50 years. And after getting the bulk of the renovation completed in the first decade, she decided she'd turn her hand to writing. Because, you know, she's a year at Oxford doing English Lit. So yeah. she's got the skills. Her first two books were published in 1954 when she was 62 years of age. The first was called U-Haul, and it was for adults, whereas the second, Children of Green No, was a children's book and described the lives of people uh, Lucy imagined may have lived in her house before her. Her very first children's book was a runner-up for the Carnegie Mall, which is an award given to the best new children's book each year. So she's hit the ground running with it. By the time of her fourth Green No book... In 1961, Maria had honed her art and won the Carnegie Medal. Yes. Overall, she completes six in the series, the last being published in 1976 when she was turning 84 years of age. Yes, Lucy. Yeah. The series had illustrations, but it wasn't Lucy who did them. They were illustrated by her son, but that wasn't his day job because after all, he was of Woodstock and his main day gig was working as an architect because you cannot keep the Wood family away from renovating <laughs> and doing up buildings. It's, it's in their blood. They'll always find their way back to it. The series was a hit around the world and the BBC adapted the first book into a series in 1986 when Maria was 94 years old. 
she had been consulted and had helped to write the screenplay. Though, unfortunately, I couldn't find any reference to whether she enjoyed the finished product or not. Wow. But the amazing thing is, this is a woman who was born in the Victorian era and wrote for the BBC for a show that was brought out the year before we were born. That is amazing. Just the, the amount of change she saw. She lived, and I mean properly lived, through two world wars because she was actively involved and you know affected by both of them. And she lived all the way up to the point where she was writing TV scripts. Wow. That is incredible. That is absolutely incredible. Like the amount Maria of time finally that she's died. seen. <laughs> she finally died in 1990 at the age of 98. A famous and beloved children's author. You can get her books on the Kindle. You can go back and re-watch the series that were made. There were also a few movies made based on her stories. They're all available on YouTube. And if you want to, you can still visit Green No to this day uh, by appointment. It's been preserved um, to look exactly the way it was when, when she was living there. And hopefully um, that story not only highlights a lesser known Southport native, but also gives everybody hope that actually it's not too late to pursue your dreams. Published her first book at the age of 62, and she's now remembered as a famous children's author. At 62. I've got the pictures of the manor house in front of me now, and I've got mm -hmm. pictures of the book, etc. Oh, that's so lovely. Oh, I feel a warm inside now. Yeah. Yeah. Good on you, Lucy. There you go. I'm I'm glad. It's it's a it's a happy story. A lot of history, you focus on the villains and you focus on the people who, who made massive changes in the world. And every now and then, it's nice to just look at somebody who, they just did a little thing, just made a few people's lives better. And there's a lot of people that will know that book, and be familiar with that book from childhood. Um, mm. I am going to read it now. <laughs> Not now, as in well, this second. But now, as in um, <laughs> in the what future, what way to finish the episode? Good yes. day, sir. Yeah. <laughs> I have reading to do. There's six of them, so you'd be you'd be at it for at least the rest of the evening. Um, yeah, <laughs> even if you skim read them. Oh, that's so oh, cool! That's a and... lovely little story. Ah, oh, thanks. And, and <laughs> thanks for through, bringing through that, that story. Yeah, you you've got a bit more of a sense of Southport, so that's that's my cultural north to south cultural gift for you this fine evening I love it Love Feast Love Feast